Hey everyone, this is Tim Harris. I'm the pastor of Woodburn Baptist Church and this is our weekly podcast. Hope it encourages you. Hope it makes you want to be closer to Jesus and more like him. Hope you enjoy this sermon. And if you want to know more about us, find us online at woodburnbaptist.org. Good morning, everybody. Everybody good? Good to see you. I have no idea what time of day it is. I don't know what day it is of the week. Um, it's been great, though. Gosh, meeting for church every morning at 1030 this week has been really, really special. Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Ben, I'm going to need you to do my slides. Having issues today, technical issues, but uh, just a few if you don't mind, Ben. Uh, I'm going to bring the first one up. Philippians chapter 3, starting with verse 7 is where we'll be today. So glad, so glad to see you all. Um, Y'all don't really need me to tell you how the world works, but let me tell you about one thing that I noticed that's very different from generations past, and that's simply this. Younger people no longer need older people for getting information. You realize that? Uh, used to, you had to have a teacher, you had to have some source of information. Kids needed grown-ups uh, to know things, but that's not the way the world works anymore. Younger people no longer need older people for getting information, but they need them for making meaning. Understand? Very, very different. Information is not the same thing as meaning. Now, kids have at their fingertips on, on everybody's phone is all the information you could ever need. You used to have to find an old lady and ask her how to fry chicken. But we don't need old ladies to tell us how to fry chicken anymore. That's on YouTube. Everything you need to know is on YouTube. And if it's on the internet, you know it's real. So if you want to know how to fry chicken, you just look it up on YouTube. There will be a video and somebody will demonstrate from start to finish. If you want to know how to tie a fisherman's knot, you used to have to go find an old man. But you don't need an old man to tell you how to tie a fisherman's knot anymore. That's on YouTube. You can Google that. You don't have to have an older person anymore to tell you anything. If you want to know who won the World Series in 1978, you don't have to go find an old man. You can Google that. If you want to know how to toilet train a toddler, you don't have to call your, your grandma anymore. You can just Google that. You understand? And I'm not making a joke. It's the world we live in. Young people have at their fingertips all the information they need. Our kindergarten Sunday school class could run a casino if they needed to because all the information they would need is immediately available to them. So knowledge is everywhere now. You can find out anything you need to know, and that's just the way the world works. However... Knowing things isn't the same thing as knowing what things mean. And so what younger people need older people for these days is for making meaning. What does it mean? What does it mean if I get all the money I ever dreamed of making, but I'm still not happy? What does that mean? You're not going to Google that. What does it mean if my spouse and I still love each other, but we find it very difficult to stay married in hard times. You're not going to Google that. What does it mean when I pray and I pray and I pray and I feel like God doesn't answer me? What does it mean? 
You see, there's knowledge and then there's wisdom. And I've always been sort of told that the difference between knowledge and wisdom is, you know, knowledge you can find in a book or you, you can look up information, but wisdom has to do with understanding. Wisdom has to do with knowing what things mean. And wisdom's supposed to come with age, right? So by now, I'm assuming that a lot of you have figured out what everything means. You have discovered the meaning of life. Have you not, right? If you haven't, you're not going to Google it, even if you knew how to. Um, it, it's interesting for me as a pastor for older folks, and, uh, and, and it's always a blessing for me in the church family to be able to walk alongside the older saints. Uh, I've watched them now, though, for years, and, and I've seen them reach a place of crisis. And if I can help any of you before you get there, I'd like to do that today. The crisis comes as a person ages because sometimes, somehow in the midst of our lives, in the living of our lives, we make the mistake of concluding that meaning in life has to do with uh, doing things, what we do. Now, it's easy in our culture to put a lot of emphasis on what we do because if you meet a stranger, what's the first thing they ask you? Well, Ben, what do you do? You know, we put a lot of emphasis on doing, and especially in our church, we are hard workers and we are doers. But it's a terrible mistake for you to assume that the meaning of your life comes in what you're able to do. Because there will be a moment in your life, if the Lord tarries and if you continue to move on through the days, there may come a time in your life when you can't do what you've always done. And what will your life mean then? Honestly, for some of us, we don't mind getting older. Getting older is not the problem. It's the fear of getting older and no longer being useful. It's that feeling that nobody needs me and I can't do anything for anybody. That's what crushes a person. So can we just go to Paul? And can we read the word of God together? And can we just remind each other where meaning in life is found? It's not in doing. You've always known that it's by grace that we've been saved through faith and not by works. But boy, don't we love to work. Maybe the best things in life don't come by working. Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 7. I'm in the middle of Paul, and he is all up in it now, y'all. He is really talking. He's been talking for a long time, and he's answering his critics. And his critics are these what, the ones that Paul calls the super apostles. Man, I mean, these guys have a resume. These guys got skills. These guys are impressive. And there was a time in Paul's life when he felt like that he was going to be impressive. And he liked impressing. And he felt like an important man doing important things. But uh, he eventually found true wisdom, and this is where he shares it with us. I'm going to start in verse 7. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. Paul's talking about his life and what matters in life. I once thought... These things were valuable, these things being all the good things he's ever done, right? I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. 
Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and to experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I've not achieved it. But I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past, looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. Let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things. If you disagree on some point, I believe God will make it plain to you. I, I love that. You could try that at home with your wife, but it won't work. You, know, you can disagree with me if you want to, but God's going to show you that I'm right. Yeah, I, I'm going to try that on Casey a little bit later today. Um, if you disagree on some point, I believe God will make it plain to you. Verse 16, but we must hold on to the progress that we've already made. Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine. Learn from those who follow our example, for I've told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows that they're really enemies of the cross of Christ. They're headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth, but we're citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we're eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I love you. Long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive from my work. The meaning of life. You've figured that out, right? Gosh, um, a, a lot of you know and would remember Sarah Sutherland. Uh, Y'all know how much I loved her. I know how much you all loved her. She was a wonderful saint in our church. Uh, gosh, Sarah used to do everything around here. She led the missions groups. She led us in praying for missions. Her heart for the world was gigantic. Uh, Sarah Sullivan used to visit the nursing home like nobody's business. She went to all of them. And when I first came as pastor 26 years ago, she made me go with her. Uh, I don't think it was an option. I just went with her. Uh, it was wonderful. She was so faithful. She was so good. We'd go to Fern Terrace. Uh, we'd sing. We'd preach. Uh, we'd go out when uh, Walford's personal care home was right here, the Woodburn nursing home right behind the hill here. Uh, gosh, we'd sit out in the yard. There was an old bluegrass guitar player that they're named Woody. And Woody would start playing guitar and he'd get going and he'd forget that we were like just people from church singing with him. He would kind of flash back and think we were his band. 
And he'd be just playing. He'd go, take it, Sarah. Like Sarah was supposed to take off singing. And he'd go, take it, Sarah. And Sarah would say, Woody, I don't want it. <laughs> Woody would go back to playing. Sarah used to make the communion bread. For every communion, she just made amazing sourdough bread. I'd go to her house to visit her, and she would make me tea, which, you know, are we in Woodburn? I mean, she would make me hot tea and uh, homemade cookies, chocolate chip cookies, which she made all the time for any guest and all of her grandchildren. Sarah was a nurse and one of the smartest ladies I've ever known. When Sarah got Parkinson's, she got this gigantic textbook on Parkinson's, and she read it cover to cover, and then she made me read it, <laughs> cover to cover. Sarah said, if you're going to be my pastor and I'm going to have Parkinson's, you're going to need to understand this. She made me read the book. I read the book. I remember the day I was sitting at her table drinking a cup of hot tea, and uh, Sarah said, my son tells me that I can't take care of my own medicine anymore. They're coming over and putting my pills in a little plastic case. She said, I hate that. I'm a nurse, she said. I'm a nurse. I can't manage my own medicine anymore. For a long time, Norma would come over and make the bread at Sarah's house and bring it to us for communion and that was supposed to make Sarah feel like she made it but Sarah knew good and well she wasn't making that bread anymore uh, that broke her heart but when she couldn't make cookies for the grandchildren anymore and one thing by one thing by one thing she lost all of that all of the things she'd ever done remember Winnie Mae Hopper and Boots Hopper. I remember when Boots first got saved, and it was late in life, and then he joined the choir, <laughs> which was really something. Winnie Mae and Boots would sing in the choir. and Oh, my goodness, so faithful. Winnie Mae was just, oh, my goodness, lived her whole life faithful to this, to this church. And then, as you know, Winnie Mae ended up blind, lost her sight. Um, I visited her in the nursing home in the end, and she would say, why won't the Lord just take me home? She said, it's just a dark world. I mean, she was blind sitting in that room in Hopkins Nursing Home, and she would just say, why won't the Lord just take me home? It's really, really hard to reach the point in your life when you realize you can't do what you've always done. Now, I'm not saying that every single one of us are going to end up blind and deaf and in a bed somewhere and, and end all of our days, you know, like that. I, I don't think that's not the way most of us are going to die. That's not what the end of our life will look like. But still, you know that as we age, and it doesn't take that long for your body to just start reminding you, you are not young anymore. You can't do what you used to do. I don't know where it comes from. I don't know why I'm doing it. But now when I sit down or get up, something in my body makes a noise. It goes, uh, uh. Like, I just sit down and go, uh, like, why am I doing that? Like, and I'm not thinking about it. I'm not, I'm not, 
trying to do it or not do it. It's just like my body just goes, uh, when I get up or down. And I don't, I don't understand that. It, it makes me sound like an old man, which I don't appreciate. I, I, I don't know exactly how all of this works, only to say that I know that we are bodies which are, as Paul says, jars of clay, you know, and they break down. They get old. They were never meant to last forever, and they don't. And so for us, if we attach the meaning of our lives, if we think that our worth somehow comes from what we can do, what these bodies can accomplish, then understand there's going to come a crushing moment for us when all of a sudden our bodies won't do what our bodies used to do. So in case you needed any kind of reminding, I just want to call you to the scriptures today and remind you what, what Paul says. Understand, your personal worth is not tied up in what you do. I know this is hard. It's really, really hard. And most of us who are younger, you hear those words and you still think, yeah, yeah, I understand. Amen, Pastor Tim, amen. It's one thing to understand that in your head. It's another thing to really begin to absorb the meaning of that. Your personal worth is not tied up in what you do. Your worth consists from knowing and being in Christ. Understand, it's not doing, it's being. It's it's, it's being. So when somebody as you know, important as the Apostle Paul begins to speak, I, I want to listen. And when somebody like the Apostle Paul says, listen, there's only really one thing I'm focusing on. Like Paul says a lot. And I feel like I need to listen to everything Paul says. But when Paul says, listen, there's really just one thing I'm focused on. Okay, now I'm zeroing in. Because, I mean, that's where Paul says, you know, this one thing, it rises above sort of everything else. And Paul says, there's this one thing I'm focusing on, and what is it? Verse 13, one thing I'm focused on, forgetting the past, forgetting the past. Seriously, Paul? Forgetting the past. Wow. I mean, I know that there's some things in the past we'd all like to forget, you know, like prom night, 1962. I mean, whatever it is, you I mean, there's just some things you'd like to block out your third marriage. I mean, just if you could just forget any of that happened, you know, uh, there's just parts of our past that we would love to edit out of the video, but Paul's not talking about just editing out things. Paul says, I'm just forgetting all the past. And what's he specifically talking about? I mean, like, he's saying, I, I want to be forgetful. I, I want to be forgetful. I, I want to forget the past. Now, most of here understand, he's talking about the good things. He is talking about the very things that you and I would want to make sure that the whole world remembers. I mean, if Paul had a trophy case in his house... These are the trophies for all of the things that he did. And Paul said, yeah, I'm doing my best to forget all that. The the good things. I mean, Paul is saying, I I, I want to forget the good that I've done. I I mean, seriously? Yeah. You want to forget the good that you've done. You want to forget that. Why is that? Well, why is that? Because sometimes remembering the glory days in the past 
can keep you from understanding what your life is about, what, what, what life means. It can keep you from moving forward. There's a pastor named Elmer Towns, and Elmer tells a story about being a young pastor. When he was 19 years old, 19 years old, Elmer started preaching, and uh, he, he couldn't preach his way out of a wet paper bag. He would preach people right to sleep, and he couldn't figure out, you know, those guys who could just get up and preach and have a congregation in the palm of their hand. Elmer couldn't do that. And he prayed about it, and he tried to just figure out what is the secret, you know. And one day, he was at a revival service, and he heard this revival preacher preaching. And this revival preacher was just amazing. Everybody right there in the palm of his hand. He was preaching the story of Joseph and his coat of many colors. Y'all remember that story? And this preacher, like in that moment where the brothers come and they rip the coat off of Joseph, you remember? And they dip it in blood and all of that. Well, in that moment when the preacher got to how they took the coat off of Joseph, that preacher in one fluid motion ripped his coat off, wadded it up in a ball and threw it across the church. It was awesome. Elmer said at that point, at the age of 19, as a young preacher, he thought, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, I have got to do that. I have got to do that. He's just thinking about, man, this is going to light up my church when I, so guess what he preached on the very next Sunday morning? What do you think he preached? Joseph in the coat of many colors. Absolutely he did, and he couldn't wait. Like he was reading the scripture, but inside he was busting. Because all he wanted to do was the one thing he was planning to do. He got to the point in the story when the brothers took the coat off of Joseph. And what did Elmer do? Oh, he ripped his jacket off. He threw it in a ball. He threw it across the church. And the whole church was like, whoa. It was amazing. Nobody slept that day. When it was over, people said, Pastor Elmer, that was an amazing sermon. That was a fantastic sermon. Pastor Elmer now had the secret to preaching. Coat throwing. <laughs> so the next Sunday, what do you think he did? Well, he went to the Bible to find the next coat. So he turned over, and right there, just a few pages, is where Joseph is in the house of Potiphar's wife. Remember that story? And what did she do? She tried to put the nasty old lady, tried to put the moves on cute little Joseph. Remember what she did? Yeah, she grabbed him by the coat and he ran away and left it in her hands, right? So next, next Sunday morning, Elmer preached the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's wife grabbed that coat. Joseph ran away. She ripped the coat off of his back. And when he got to that part of the story in one fluid motion, he threw his coat off. He threw it in a ball and pitched it across the church. The whole church is like, whoa. So the next Sunday... Pastor Elmer had to find another sermon with a coat in it. Now, eventually you're going to run out of coats. But he didn't know that, so he got to Palm Sunday when Jesus is coming into town riding on a donkey. And so Pastor Elmer got to the port, you know, part where everybody takes their coats off and lays them in the street. And Jesus rides by. When he got to that, he ripped his coat off and he wide and bone threw it across the church. But People weren't as impressed. 
The next Sunday, he got to the part where the soldiers were crucifying Jesus, and they ripped his robe off, and they, they, you know, they gambled for it. And when Pastor Omer got to that part of the story in one fluid motion, he tore his coat off and wadded it up and threw it. Running out of coats, though. Got to the stoning of Stephen, where everybody took their coats off and threw them at Paul's feet. And Pastor Elmer, you know, ripped off his coat in one fluid motion. But next Sunday, he's out of coats. Like that's all the coats in the Bible. He ran out of coats to throw. What did he do after that? Well, he had to learn to preach, y'all. <laughs> I promise you, the secret to preaching is not coat throwing. I would have already thrown this one. <laughs> Problem is, man, that first time he threw that coat, it was so epic. And so he spent the next number of Sundays just trying to relive that trying to get that back, that feeling of being awesome, that, that amazing moment when he surprised the congregation. He just wanted to relive that. He wanted to relive it over and over and over. He, he wanted to do that every single Sunday. And do you understand how that wrecked him? Because it doesn't matter how many coats you threw back in the day. It's gone. Those were good days. But they're gone. Paul says there's just one thing I'm focused on now. I'm forgetting the past. I'm pressing on. You understand? Help me out, Ben. You got to forget the good that you've done. Just forget that. I'm not saying you're going to get conked in the head and have amnesia. Of course you remember those things that you've done. But you can't ever imagine that... Uh, that that's the best it's ever going to be. Those were good days. But Paul says, I forget all that. I'm, I'm, I'm pressing on. See, Paul, at some point in his life, he really thought that. He really, really thought that somehow life had to do with being an important person doing important things. And he goes through the whole resume of all the things that made him important. I was a Jew of Jews. I was a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee demanded strictest obedience to the law. I followed the law without fault, he says. I mean, it's an amazing resume, but Paul says, you know what? All that's garbage. <laughs> garbage, are you kidding me? Like, that is a man reaching the very height of, of his culture and his society. Paul was living the dream, and Paul said, no, I was not. I have now come to realize all of that is garbage. Now, he's speaking relatively. In other words, I guess from one perspective, it's very impressive. But Paul says, I have learned to have another perspective on all of it. I no longer see it that way anymore. I don't see that as the height of my life. I don't see that as you know, the, 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 the glory days of the past. I don't see it that way at all. No, dear brothers and sisters, I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. And this is when he says, I know some of y'all ain't going to agree with me, but God will show you. So I know some of y'all ain't going to agree with me, but God's going to show you. You have no glory on your own. 
You've done some great things in life. Some of you ran businesses. You, you were awesome. You've been on TV. You know, people used to brag on you. You've had your picture in a Franklin favorite. <laughs> but you compare that to Christ. I mean, listen, you want to talk about what you've done and then talk about what Jesus has done for you in the same breath and you think you're going to come out looking like you're impressive? It's never about what you have done. It's what Jesus has done. If you want to know what glory is, you look at Jesus. This other thing Paul says, I struggle. I struggle. Paul says... I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. And I want to share in his suffering. Suffering. Um, If I could just say a simple word to you, I would just say, don't let suffering stop you. Paul embraces suffering here. We don't always know exactly the ways in which Paul suffered because he's just one of those guys that doesn't tell you a whole lot about his trouble. There's that one part where, where he's saying, I'm, I'm talking like a fool now, but you know, he, he begins talking about that thorn in the flesh, something, something that really tormented him. And he prayed and prayed and prayed that God would take away that, that source of suffering. And he said, instead of taking it away, the Lord just told me something. He just said, my, my grace is sufficient. So I'm not going to decrease the level of suffering in your life. I'm going to increase your experience of my grace. Don't let suffering stop you. You will reach a point where it gets harder and harder to serve the Lord. But since when has serving the Lord ever been easy? And in your life, was that your attitude that you would just serve the Lord when it was convenient? That you would just serve the Lord when it was easy? Okay, you didn't live that way at any other previous time. You can't choose to live that way now. It's harder now for some of us, and it will get harder. But that doesn't mean that you no longer serve the Lord. It doesn't mean that you let suffering stop you. You have seen the saints. You have seen those who've gone before you, and you have seen how they would sing and how they would serve and how they would just keep right on going, and you know they were in pain. Yesterday, Jason Dunbar sang his eyes on the sparrow, but in my mind, I'm watching a woman named Lou Isa Kirby sing his eyes on the sparrow. My goodness. Eliza's legs were so swollen with arthritis. So swollen with arthritis. Her wrist, her hands. She had a hip replacement. And I'll never forget it. The following Sunday night after church, we all got up and left, and she's still sitting there. I said, Eliza, you okay? She said, no. My hip popped out. Okay, I'll just let y'all know. If my hip pops out, y'all are all going to know. I, I mean, I'll be, I, will, I, will, I will let y'all know. You know, somebody call now. I mean, I will be let, I mean, I will let y'all know. Louisa sat there in her pew with her hip out of joint, letting everybody just get on out, and then she'd take care of herself. Did you ever hear her complain, and did you ever see her stay home from church because her hip hurt? Not one time. And she would pray and pray and pray for us. Like, what makes you think 
that that path for Luisa is is a path that you're somehow exempt from having to walk. You say, don't let suffering stop you. Yes, it gets hard. And some things will get harder and harder and harder. And there comes a time when you're not going to be able to do the things you used to do. But that was never where your worth was. That's never what made your life valuable. What makes your life valuable is what Jesus does for you and through you and in you. You don't let suffering stop you. And then one more thing. Give the next generation somebody to follow. Notice what Paul says here. Brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine. Okay, who says that? Listen, if you want to know how it's done, just watch me. Is that what Paul is saying? Everybody be like me. I don't, that's not exactly, because Paul's not speaking out of pride there. Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. Paul's not saying be like me. What Paul is saying is be like Jesus. And and if there's anything of Jesus that you see in me, you imitate that. But Paul's not literally saying, hey, everybody be like Paul. Be like Jesus. But sometimes in the life of faith, there are people in our lives who walk so closely to Jesus that it just makes you want to be more like him. I want to be more like Sarah Sutherland. I want to be more like Louisa Kirby. You know, I want to be more like some of you because I look at you and I see Jesus in you. And we need those examples. And the rising generation really, really needs examples to follow. You cannot disappear. You cannot retire. You cannot just assume that because they all got iPhones, they don't need grandparents anymore. The next generation needs you. The next generation of this church, they need you. That They need your wisdom. Now, I'm telling you, they're not going to do everything the way that you used to do it because remember, those days are gone. So you've got to learn how to figure out because you don't have a lot of time left. And and grandkids have very short attention spans. So you're going to have to learn to edit. Like you're going to have to learn to figure out what is important to pass on and what is it that just may have to pass on with me. You know? Because some things are just going to die with you. Your granddaughters are not going to use dippity-doo. Y'all remember dippity-doo? Yeah. I don't even remember where that came from. Y'all remember like when women used to get together and give each other perms? Like you'd get a, a what's it called? A Tony. Anybody ever got a Tony? Yeah. In the 1970s, my daddy got a Tony. Like he, he, looked, like, he looked like Chad Everett, you know, walking around. That was the 70s. Um, <laughs> nobody's going to get a Tony anytime soon. They're just not. Um, I know you're kind of waiting around for the second coming of Conway Twitty, but he is not coming back. Not coming back. Um, we, we want that. We, we would love to share some of the things we've loved so much with the next generation, but there's some things they're just never going to understand because they weren't there. They weren't there. They're here. And, and, and now this is their time, and, and, and you have a lot that you need to give them, but you need to know the difference between what they need to know and, and just what you'd like for them to love, you know? They need examples to follow. They need examples of godliness. 
I love that story. In the Old Testament, when the children of Israel finally get to the promised land. Now, remember, they were delayed for a long time. Do you remember why? Because when the fathers and mothers first got there, they sent spies in. And there were, you know, a whole bunch of spies, but there are only two, Joshua and Caleb, who came back with the right report. Joshua and Caleb came back and said, what? That place is beautiful. Let's go take it. Let's go do it. God brought us here. God's fighting for us. Let's go take it. It's beautiful. It's everything. It's everything they said. It's a land that flows with milk and honey. Everybody, let's go. But what did all the other spies say? Hmm. Yeah, it really is a pretty place, but we're never going to live there. There's already people living there. And they are so big. They are like big giants. And, and, and we're just like grasshoppers. They all took a vote. Had a business meeting. Took a vote. It was everybody against two. Joshua and Caleb So we can do this. We can do this. God brought us this far. He parted the Red Sea for us. He rains bread down from heaven for us. We can go. We can do this. And everybody else said, no, we can never do this. So what happened? Children of Israel walked around for 40 years. And that was, that was the plan. God said, okay, you don't want the promised land. You're never going to get the promised land. So you're just going to get the wilderness. And they walked around in the wilderness for 40 years until every last one of them was dead. They didn't want the promised land, so God said, you're not going to have the promised land. That's your choice. And so they died in the wilderness. Every single member of that generation died because they would not go forward in faith. They got delayed because they just had to have several thousand funerals before they could move forward into what God had for them. But after several thousand funerals and 40-something years, God brings them right back to the threshold of the promised land. And I love it. And remember what happens next. They truck out Caleb. Like one day not long ago, I was at Cambridge Market, and I saw one of my elementary school teachers, and I thought, good Lord, is she still alive? Yeah, you ever do that? How is she still alive? You ever done, am I, is that just me? You ever just look at somebody that was an old person when you're young and you see them now and you think, how is she still living? You know, she was a hundred when I was in third grade and, and there she is. Good Lord, help her. She, how is she still alive? So I said everybody died, but not everybody died. There were two men that got to live to walk into the promised land. They were who? Joshua and Caleb. So they bring out Caleb, 85-year-old Caleb, not a tooth in his head, hair all everywhere, you know, wearing, you know, like polyester suit and a, you know, like one of those leisure suits like they had back, you know, in the old days. And he comes trucking out, you know, and they're like, good night. Is he still living? Like, where's he been? Like, where? I mean, he is the oldest man in the nation. The oldest man alive. And he's just like the crypt keeper comes out, this old man. And they're like, good night. Is he still alive? And what does Caleb say? I want that mountain. I want that mountain. I stepped foot on it years and years ago when God said I could have it. And I'm going to go take it now. Who's with me now? Do you understand? Caleb was an example to follow. He's an example. Oldest man in the nation. 
I promise you he was out of style. I promise you he had that old man smell about him. I promise you he did. I promise you he was splashing on old spice or high karate or whatever, you know, the old men are still wearing. And, and I promise you all of that. I promise you. His zipper was open. He, had, he was driving down the road with his turn signal on. But he gave them somebody to follow. He gave them something to follow. He said, God, God promised us this land, and God has not, not failed on his promise. Let's go take this land. I want that mountain. Give the next generation somebody to follow. We talked about revival the last couple of days. What we said was, lots of times revival has to come in the next generation because the previous generation, they, they lost it. They backslid. They didn't manage to hand over a, a revived people of God. And so at some point, a, another generation has to find it for themselves. The rising generation of this church should not have to find it for themselves. You have stories to tell. You have prayers that God has answered. You have wisdom. I know, I know the kids, they got iPads, they, they got iPhones, you know. I mean, they, they could take their iPhone and, and, and make a rocket to the moon, and there you'd stand, and, and you, you can't even keep your Facebook going. They got all kinds of knowledge, but... They don't know what any of it means. They don't know how to make a promise and keep it until you die. They, they, they don't know what it means to be blessed to be a man or blessed to be a woman. They don't know what any of that means anymore. They don't know what it means when you pray and you have to wait on the Lord. They don't know how to wait on anything. Teenage son said to his father in the kitchen, Daddy, why do microwave ovens have to take so long? Y'all remember when we used to make popcorn? It'd take all night. <laughs> It'd take all night. My daddy'd have a pan, be rattling in there, with, you know, and he'd burn half of it and have to start over. And microwave popcorn takes what? 90 seconds? Why has it got to take so long? I'm telling you. Generation don't know how to wait for anything. If they don't know how to wait on the Lord, then. Where are they going to be? So they know things, but they don't know what things mean. I mean, they, they know how to fry chicken because they can see it on YouTube. They can see how to tie a fisherman's knot. They can find out how to toilet train a toddler. You know, that you can Google that. But they're never going to know what it all means unless those who know that all of the meaning and worth and value in life come from Jesus you know that, right? It's never been found in what you do. You, you may have lived a fruitful, wonderful, productive life, but that's never been what made your life worth living. Jesus it what makes your life worth living. And if you think that all your best days are behind you, like when Paul says, I forget the past, I'm moving toward the future. See, the problem is a lot of you, you think you don't have anything to look forward to yet, and that's why you are, oh, so sadly deceived. You know better. 
Because of Jesus and, and the reward that he has waiting for us, all of the best things, all of the best things, things you've never even imagined, things you've never asked for, everything sweet in this life, I promise you, is actually found in the life to come. Forget all the good that you've done. Forget all the things that you thought were fun and fun while they lasted. I just want you to understand all of the greatest joy you will ever experience is still in the future. You just forget the past. Press on toward the future. Paul says, I just want to know Jesus. I just want to know Jesus. You know this, right? Jesus is what makes life worth living. The fact that Jesus loves you is what gives you value. Nothing you've ever done has made him love you more. Nothing you'll ever do can make him love you less. If you want to know what life is about, you need to know Jesus. And if you know Jesus, then you know what your life is worth. Pray with me.